Welcome to This Must Be the Place, the show that reveals the unique physical, cultural, and emotional layers of places. This evening, I'm joined by Peter Miller. Peter's a proprietor of Peter Miller Books, a long standing Seattle shop offering design, architecture, and art books, along with a bevy of related supplies. Peter's shop has been part of the fabric of Seattle for nearly 40 years now, not only offering his fine products for sale, but also being an epicenter for Seattle's design and architecture community. Whenever I visit his shop, more often than not, it seems that people who love design, architecture, typography, urban theory, and so on bump into each other and spend time catching up, talking about books, briefcases, pens, and paper. In addition to creating and curating this quintessential Seattle shop, Peter is the author of two books, two that I know of, maybe I'll be corrected, hmm. Lunch at the Shop, The Art and Practice of the Midday Meal, and Five Ways to Cook Asparagus and Other Recipes, The Art and Practice of Making Dinner. Peter, thank you for joining me oh, this pleasure. evening. I'm curious to hear your narrative on the twists and turns of your life and how it led you to the here and now. Did you always know that opening a design and architecture shop in Seattle was in the cards? Tell us a bit about yourself and how Peter Miller Books came to be. When I uh, came out here in 1970 from New England and came out west, and I always say that if you had asked all my friends, and I had I had finished graduate school and uh, a, a good crew of friends, if you'd said, tell me all you know about Seattle, I don't know anybody would have really had more than a sentence or two. It was a funny uh, distance from the consciousness of the rest of the country. And I literally knew nothing about it. Uh, jobs were hard. And Seattle was a half-broken, unpopular uh, town that had the famous sign, last person turn the lights out. And I thought, well, I, maybe I'll go up there and uh, and just see. And there was no there was no work up here. I had finished graduate school at Harvard in education. And eventually I went over to Garfield, the high school, and I got a job there. But they were having immense cutbacks. So I got a job cooking down in Pioneer Square at a place called Das Gasthaus. And I was the day chef. And Marvin Timberlake, the owner, was the night chef. And it was down there that I I mean, this is literally a couple, probably three weeks after I'd been here, that I took a bus up the hill up Madison, and I saw Mount Rainier for the first time. I didn't know it even was a Mount Rainier or a Space Needle, or it was. It was a time in Seattle's history in terms of obscurity, the rest of the mm. country. And I liked the job cooking down there, but I then wanted to sort of make contact with more people, and I ran into some people who had actually come from the East Coast, Ray Mungo, who was a very popular writer at the time, New York Times bestseller writer, and Kathy Rogers, and, and they had started uh, Liberation News Service in Massachusetts and Vermont and New York City. And I ran into them, and uh, so then at least I had some company for a little while. And we decided to open a bookshop, and we opened a bookshop up in Wallingford, which was $200 a month. And pretty soon, Tom Robbins would come on Sunday nights, and Alan First, you know, Alan First, the mystery writer who went on to extraordinary fame as a principally World War II mystery writer for Random House. But while I was running the shop, I was uh, hired by Elliott Bay to be the contractor to build their new shop right there on the corner of First and Main. Elliott Bay Bookstore? Yeah. Is it? yeah. They were moving around the corner to that space, and it was a big space, and I had a little crew, and we did the architecture with Alan Black doing the design. And while I was down in Pioneer Square, I thought, you know, the only part 
that I love about the book business is this sort of elegant part of it, the exquisite part, or what I saw as the exquisite part, which was not the literature that I'd been trained in, but the design Mm. that I had not been trained in. And I thought it was odd that somebody as well-trained as I was, and I was quite well-trained in what I was doing, knew nothing about typography. I knew nothing about perspective. I knew nothing about architecture. I knew what anyone knew, but I soon came to realize that really was like knowing nothing. I, If you had said to me, name four typefaces, I didn't have it. If you had said to me, talk to me about architecture, I didn't have it. If you had said, tell me about Joseph Albers, I couldn't have done it. And it became clear that that whole side of uh, the world of perception, the world of construction, the world of uh, art, I knew something about art, but I knew nothing about design. And even to this day, when I go back to the East Coast to see my family, I realize that still continues to this day. And I didn't like it, and I wanted to learn more about it, and I decided to open a shop with specifically design. So we opened the shop, and, you know, if it had been, Eric, a Broadway show, uh, you would have closed. Mm. You would have closed after three days, because it was clear that it, for whatever reason, it was either before its time or I was not strong enough at it or the location was too difficult. But Was there a strong design and architecture community at the time? <clears throat> there was still – there was a community, although a lot of the community was best served by um, other cities. Bill Stout had a wonderful shop in San Francisco. And some of my customers would come in and say, ah, my bookshop is Rizzoli in New York. That's where I get my stuff. So it was like clothing. I, I get my clothes in mm, New York. Yeah. Later, 20 years later, when Rizzoli asked if I would run their shop, I thought, well, at least we've solved that. You mean they were trying to come into Seattle or they wanted to No, they wanted to me to York. go back there. Oh. I thought, well, at least we've addressed that. And that's the Rizzoli in 57th or yeah. something like that, yeah. Midtown? Yeah. yeah. So mm-hmm. uh, anyway, we opened. We opened. It didn't do very well. It had some great moments. One of them, I guess the one I remember the best, when someone showed me a new issue of GA Houses and I'd never seen it. It had come from Japan and it was – you know, it was color TV versus black and white, really. It was it was so handsome and so subtle and so well done and so colorful and so buoyant compared to most of the publishing. And I was thrilled. I wrote the address down, 3-12-14 Sendagaya Shibuyaku, and, which I, remember, I will remember to the end of my days. And I wrote out an envelope and I wrote a – typed out a long – request that they send me four copies of eight of their books. And that was all. I didn't tell them who I was and I didn't know who they were. And so I went to the post office and I asked how much to get this letter there. And they put a stamp on it. And I came back and I thought I was walking back. I thought, well, why didn't you just take it down to the water and stick it in a bottle? This is, nothing's going to come mm-hmm. with this. But, you know, two weeks later, this perfect package from Tokyo came with books brilliantly packaged and safe and handsome and lovely. And we put those in and it was things like that that uh, made me think, this, this is a, not a terrible idea. It might take a while, but it's not a terrible idea. Bill Stout came and introduced himself and said he would help. A very sweet gesture, which there's not many on this earth would do such a thing, come from San Francisco to say hello to a competitor. Hmm. But the shop didn't really work on Western. Um, the bank wanted their money back. And uh, I guess I thought it was maybe coming to an end. And I happened to be going home. I lived up by the market and I saw that this little shop right next to the Fairmont Hotel was a dress shop called Mallory Nelson was closing. And it looked so lovely and handsome. And 
So I closed the one in Pioneer Square. I rented the one up there. I talked the AIA into coming up. They were looking for a new location. The market was fresh, really, just new from its renovations. Pioneer Square, on the other hand, was dealing with a lot of issues that it didn't know how to deal with. To my mind, the sports had betrayed it, really. So we moved up to the market and you know, it was like letting air in. Suddenly people came, the AIA was there. And that's Pike Place Market and the American Institute of Architects? Yeah, we right? brought them yeah. up from, they were down here. Yeah. Which is ironic, of course, because now I've just moved all the way back here. And the AIA has also moved almost all the way back here on Western Avenue. So mm-hmm. uh, it took 35 years or something to, to move back to, to, where, move back to where you were. Right. Yeah. And Pioneer Square clearly now has found a grip on uh, design and a grip on intelligence that should protect it. I, mm-hmm. I hope. Coexistence with the Sounder Seahawks, Mariners. It might even it might even coexist well if mm-hmm. it if it gets enough um, housing. It has to have enough security to allow people to feel mm-hmm. security. Yeah, and with the coming in of warehouser. Yeah, the warehouser the was a big help. Yeah. yeah, the warehouser was a big help. Now it just needs. It needs tinkering and security. Um, you know, you can walk through the Pike Place Market in a bathing suit at four in the morning <laughs> in November, and mm-hmm. you'll be just fine. Yeah. It's great I mean, for yeah, photography at night. Right. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it is quietly, brilliantly secure. And so anyway, when the shop moved up there, it allowed it to breathe after about four years in that little location in Mallory Nelson space. The big location across the street came available, and no one wanted it. I didn't want it. It was too high-ceilinged. It was too big. Uh, it wasn't expensive. It just intimidated me. But finally, I thought, you know, either do it or stop being a retailer because you can't do it in this little space. You've got to actually say, this is me. Making a shop work is two things. It has to work that your customer likes it, appreciates it, spends money on it, pays your rent. It also has to work that you like it, that you appreciate it, that you can go to it. Uh, in my case, that your children like it. In my case, um, any number of things. But it has to it has to work for it to work. And I always tell people when they have a shop, particularly when it starts to get a little busy, to keep in mind that the weak link in a shop that has an owner on it is the owner. The owner loses the sheer will and the sheer pleasure of it, then you have a problem. What's interesting, it's a common theme with a lot of people I've, I've spoken to in this podcast when I asked them, how did you did you plan to become what, what you are now? And 80% of the time, people tell me, no, I was right. originally something completely different. And then the you know trials and tribulations of life, vicissitudes of life led right. me to this path. Yeah. So it's interesting to hear you started in graduate education, it sounds like, yeah. in literature, and now right. here you are owning a, a design shop. I started as a graduate student in philosophy and, you know, culminated right, in marketing and advertising. <laughs> no, no, right? perfect start. Yeah, that's that's a general yes. <laughs> canvas, blank canvas to go in many spaces. Yes. When you... And yet the philosophy yeah. sits behind you. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And you go it's to the it foundation. a million times. Yeah, it doesn't matter what... You go to it a million times. You go... You go, you you throw it right at a bunch of things, and you think, hmm, I'll be good at this. Yeah, it's a Rosetta Stone of analytical thinking, no matter what discipline it, it, you're it, in. It's, it's your ability it's to field, field the ball in a million directions. Yeah. yeah. 
So what, what are your thoughts and approach around designing and nurturing the shop and the experiences it offers, especially when the context of you described all the different locations and urban settings it has been a part of over the years? I personally have been here a little over 10 years, and I've seen three iterations of the mm-hmm. shop. Mm-hmm. One on First Avenue in Belltown near Pike Place Market, mm-hmm. then at the front space of what used to be the Suyama Peterson Deguchi Architecture Studio on Second, mm-hmm. and now it's in Post Alley back in Pioneer Square, which is one of the oldest parts of the city. That's a lot of movement in 10 years and a lot of effort to redesign the space, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I, I, I would have done none of them. And in each of them, I took seriously and talked seriously with my family about being done with it, talked seriously about moving it to a different town. I really would have done none of them. The First Avenue move was because it became too expensive. Now, I thought we were quite secure there because we did a lot for that building. We filled it with designers. and But beneath all that, of course, coming was this dot-com mob, and that gave a confidence to every building owner in the city that you could make more money being empty, just waiting, than you could with an old-fashioned tenant. Mm-hmm. It really took all the affection for an old-fashioned tenant. It made an old-fashioned tenant look like a dead bat. Mm-hmm. It took real estate and made it a comp- quite different pleasure, but not a pleasure, of course, for a traditional, especially a particularly traditional one like me. Um, so we moved from there. We didn't want to. I really didn't believe we would ever be asked to, but we were. And George, frankly, walked down from his brilliant architecture office and said, come on up, come on and join up with us. Come on up there. And no one does that. I mean, and George saved us Mm. because we had just uh, emerged from a very different, that very difficult economy when all of us had spent whatever money we had saved just to get everybody's payroll covered. And we were just beginning to put the little pieces together that would allow you to uh, revive yourself. So George came. It saved us. I don't think Belltown will ever be much of a great location for public uh, daytime retail. It's a great location for certain things, but they're more food and drink related than my kind of retail. I loved being with them. I loved seeing them. I loved having them right next to me. I loved the space, but it was elegant exile, really cross. And when George came down and said, you know, I don't have to sell, but we should sell because nobody around us, we should go somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was heartbroken, but uh, he was right. And I then did something I'd never done before, which is I asked everyone I could in every form that I could for help, having not the slightest idea what it would do, but I had the incredible backup of knowing that if I didn't get any help, we could be done with this. And, but instead, of course, I got the brilliant help. I got help from firms. I got help from Dovetail Construction. I got help from Shukert Dow. I got help from six architecture firms. I got help from people that someone came and helped. And I said, you can't even lift a box. (laughs) But everyone helped. Uh, We got incredible support for the space moving down to Pioneer Square. We actually started with Jeannie Kundig, where she said, you know, this is not a normal idea, but it just might work. Go look at this thing. And I looked at it and it had barbed wire and windows were boarded up and it had no floor and the water was dripping. And I said, this genie, you're really asking me to have a great imagination here. And it was that winter when it was that horrible winter. But, you know, I'm a very lucky man in that I have people who have helped the shop from the day it was born and their help 
unfolds in such a way that Gordon Walker's bookcases from 38 years ago have moved twice, and they look as handsome as they did 38 years ago. In fact, in some ways, they look better. And he came, as we were trying to figure out the rest of the design down in Pioneer Square, and said, just give me a wall. I want to help. Give me a wall to design. And we had this the alley side wall, and nobody could figure out how to combine the windows and the sequence and the, because we were using all of the same bookcases. We were using all of the same shelving, all of the same structures in different, they broke down into different components, and we just couldn't figure that wall out. And he came and he sat in there with yellow trace and pencil and scratched and scratched and scratched. Then he says, ah, Christ, there it is. There, I got it. Pulled this thing out, and then he did. Which, which raises an interesting question I have about your relationship, uh, not just you, but your store to the community. I, I guess I did not exaggerate earlier when I described your community and how it's formed around you and your shop. It's really a natural place for design, art, architecture geeks to spend time in and flaunt their plumage mm-hmm. for other like-minded folks. How did that organic community form over time? Did you undertake any actions to spark it or maintain it, or did it just clump together like... I wish, you know, I wish I, I wish I could say we took activity. The my job is that it be handsome, clean, intelligently done, and open. That's my job. The things that have helped us are things like wineries making it so that we served better wine than we should have. You mean giving you their you, wine? Giving you wine. Events, it's yeah. you know some wine that we never could have. We never could have had, and they just wanted it there. And or Kathy Wesselman saying, "You have to let me work on the signage." <laughs> and when she did this uh, project, the Pioneer Square, where we are now, and I, I called her. I said, "You have to fix it." And she said, "I'm retired." And I said, "Only from public work." And she said, "Fine, I'll be in there in the morning." And she came down and she did a brilliant job. She did it. She made three moves that. Not that many people could have made, and they were tiny, and you you don't notice them for a second. But in terms of signage, uh, they're quite brilliant. And there were there were other ways, or bigger ways, or smaller ways, or and but, so I feel very lucky that way. And my community is that we you know do the best we can. I mean, you know, to my mind, the shop should make. That group that is trying to make a living from design, it should make them proud of design. And if that means it also makes them proud of how they feel when they go in there, if that means it makes them proud when we have someone speak, um, when we have book signing events, I always make the person speak. And I make them speak because the otherwise the event seems sort of dull-witted to me. And Maybe that's a microcosm of what we're supposed to do. And I think, you know, a shop, I mean, what's a shop? A shop is the only soft spot in a whole city. A beauty salon's not a shop. A beauty salon's not a soft spot. You can't go into a beauty salon. A restaurant's not a soft spot. You can't go into the restaurant and say, no, no, no. Well, hi, what would you like? No, no, I'm just sitting. Hmm. And by soft spot, you soft mean spot, a place if where you, you can, can come in and say, can I use the bathroom? You can come in, walk around. Hi, can I help? No, you can come in. Mm-hmm. You know, you can come in and do terrible things until I throw you out. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is a, it is, and I don't want to go too far because I don't want anyone to think of it this way. But it is an extraordinary democracy, a shop. That's why there's so few of them. It's an agora in a yeah, classic really. sense. It's yeah. this thing. Is there 
a double-edged sword or a paradox in, in building the kind of community that build around your shop? Because it, let's, let's face it, it's a very, in a way, esoteric or insular community, people who love art, design, mm -hmm. architecture, urban planning. And as you said, they rally with you in order to sustain this, this great place, this soft spot mm -hmm. that they love over four decades plus. But is it somewhat elitist? Is it exclusionary to the wider swath of, of people out there? Do you think about that? It's, it's incredibly exclusionary, but I think what we exclude are, I mean, if we exclude anything, we exclude braggarts or we exclude, um, you know, we get the best of everyone. We get the head of the firm by himself, not looking like the head of the firm. I mean, we get Rem sitting in there trying to find a book, you know, and we, we try to say, can we help you? And we try to leave you alone if you say, I'm fine. Uh, we try to say hello. We try to say goodbye. Mm. Reminds me of a, a common complaint in, in the European model. When people go to restaurants in certain European countries and sit down and are not immediately greeted with the typical language games right. and greetings. Right. And Hi, my, name, you, my name's Tim. Are you okay? Right. Do you want something? Can I get you anything? And people actually feel offended that they're not being checked in at the yes. level of service that they're used to while... The other side of the interpretive coin there is that precisely they're giving you that space, that soft yes. spot for you to just be in the city and enjoy mm -hmm. time, the aesthetic moment. And when you're ready to have something, you can reach out and, and ask for mm -hmm. it. So it's a it's a very different model. Yes. And, and it's not like your community is a is understanding the you, soft spot approach you, to it. You you will never go into a shop in Europe and not have someone say hello to you. And you will Rarely go in and not have them say goodbye. Now, they're more brilliant than I. And when I go on buying trips to Europe, I go to shops to hear the sound of a shop, to hear the sound of how it's done. It's not always done brilliantly. It's not even always done kindly. Uh, it may be done with arrogance. It may be done with any number of things. I don't think in our case that arrogance is called for. We, mm. You know, I would guess that one of the great difficulties of the shop was Amazon discounting the books so much and then having people come with their phones mm. and copying down what they want and leaving. Or on the spot checking it. Or on the spot checking. But before mm. the checking, it was even the taking it down, knowing it was going to be cheaper. In the traditional sense, that was what I did. I helped you find the books you wanted. And that runs deep in me, that helping part to help you get in fruit stand language, the best fruits and vegetables you can mm -hmm. get. It strikes me during your description, not just of, of the shop in the soft spot and mm -hmm. your experiences in Europe, what would you want from a shop or from any, in a way, physical aesthetic event in front of you as a personality, whether that personality is angular, whether it's softer, mm -hmm. whether it's it's got arrogance, whether it's got bite, you want some of that angularity personality in your experience as opposed to the standardized language yes. games that are becoming more and more common. How's your across. day going so far? Mm -hmm. Right. Yes. Anything else I could do for you? So right. do you want a bag with that? Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, and, and of course, that's not easy to do. Uh, I think one of the most brilliant at it, really, I, I, I know people who are going to be shocked if they hear me say this. I think Nordstrom is brilliant at keeping itself more human than you would imagine. And uh, it's just a, 
a thing they do. I, I, there are many things Nordstrom does that I find extraordinarily stupid, but that's not one of them. They're really, they can make you feel that you have come to their ground and that it's okay. And that's a very hard thing to do. And I've always given them great credit for it. You know, you've run your shop for 40 years now, and that's quite an achievement, especially as, as we've talked about the world becomes increasingly digital. Mm -hmm. And it's not just a general bookshop. It's a highly specialized bookshop. Why do you think your shop has survived for, for so long, despite all these ebbs and flows? Well, I always tell the staff that it survives because of the way we display everything. I said, our displays need to be intelligent, if not attempting to be very intelligent. They need to be, they need to show intelligence in places that no one would imagine it needs intelligence. But it's definitely a competition from online. There's a narrative, there's yes. pacing, almost like a museum exhibit. Yes, you, you, right. we don't try to curate um, what you feel when you come in and what you're going to, we don't, or we don't bother with it. We try to play um, brilliant music, but frankly, we've never once taken a moment to decide what our customers might think is brilliant music. Uh, personally, I think that the classical music station from Stockholm is brilliant Tuesday through Friday and not as good on Saturday. Um, and that's just me. I, I'm very important because I've got to be there so often. Not very important because I am important, but because I need to be able to hear the thing. And we must um, not be provincial. Um, and we must be, uh, you know, I wear a tie. I wear a tie because I'm going to work. It's how I know I'm going to work. Obviously, as someone said, you own it. Why do you wear a tie? And I said, well, if I didn't wear a tie, it need not necessarily be because I didn't own it or did own it. I said, I wear a tie because I'm really quite pleased and because a man has so few things in his narrative that even have variations of color. Mm -hmm. I said, it's an amusement to me and helps me go to work. <laughs> Let's shift gears a little bit and talk right. about your books a yeah. bit. You wrote two books, one covering the art of midday meals right. and another covering ways to cook asparagus and other vegetables yeah. and dinner. At first blush, these are cookbooks. Yes. But if you spend more time with them, there seems to be a deeper manifesto that's woven within them, a type of plea for people to slow down, mm -hmm. enjoy their time, enjoy their food, and transform those typical sterile fluorescent workplaces into a warmer environment. Is that a fair reading? Is there a philosophical yeah. foundation that motivates your yeah, writing? That's correct. You're correct. I don't... If you pushed me, I mean, the lunch thing came about because... We had two or three people working at the time, and they would bring back these horrid packages of lettuce and this awful dressing made that month before, and the lettuce packed into this clear plastic container. And it wasn't the lettuce I had such a problem with. It, it was the container. I couldn't stand the container. I couldn't stand it in the trash, and I couldn't stand hearing it. And I laughed and said, I'll just make you a salad. I can make all three of you a salad for the price of one of these. And... We started, literally, we started like that. I asked someone else to make us a pasta, and they made us a pasta, and it was great to eat the eat in the back. And then it, then it literally grew and raised itself until lunch at the shop quite fabulously had a life. And it had such a life, there wasn't a person back there thinking of going out for lunch. Well, you'd be stupid to go out for lunch. The lunch was better, funnier, more intimate. 
guaranteed to have things that you couldn't otherwise have and <laughs> revealing, really, in its own whacked-out way. Everybody contributed, and some people were just awful cooks and said, I'm only doing the dishes. I'm not doing one thing. I'm not going to do one thing that involves cooking. And some turned out to have, for example, Caitlin turned out to have perfect taste. If you took the tiniest drop, the tiniest fragments of paprika and put it in just to see, she would call it out. Mm. See, it was remarkable. And their, the, the conversation, the life of, the humor, the listening to people laugh, the, it was completely clear to me. It came to affect how you walk to work, whether you walked by the bakery or not, whether you brought lemons, whether you had ham left. Anyway, and it so took on its own life. And people would come, and they would love it. And people would say, well, when, you know, when can I go? I said, well, you... It's not really clear that <laughs> this way. is a restaurant. <laughs> I mean, but we were perfectly happy to have them. We needed, uh, we learned you needed to have good olive oil. You needed to have good vinegar. You needed to have a lemon. You needed to have a lime. You needed to have a little butter if you could, salt, good salt, good peppercorns. You know, we had a little troop. Mm -hmm. And you could so easily see that it took the task of a day and gave it this little island of humor. Yeah, there is something about taking that time to have a, a well-crafted lunch and setting up a place to have that communal experience right. that really helps people take off their day-to-day -day work personas and their armor, yep. Yep. right? They, they, then they go right back. They go back to rah, 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 rah. But, <laughs> but while they're there, you know, they will ask the most amusingly intimate questions because they're at lunch. There's a completely other code and it's great. It simply creates a moment off time, which is a hell of a benefit and a hell of a um, relief. And once you put the boots on and get the equipment and get a few plates and get a few things to cook on, and we had a kind of unspoken code, which was you had 15 minutes at max. If you couldn't do it in 15 minutes, then this was you, – you were, you were up to something completely different. It clearly had a life. I presented that to a – wonderful publisher in New York, Abrams Books, along with a couple of other ideas. And they ignored the other ideas and said, let's do the lunch book. And LATS, we called it Lunch at the Shop. And the book has been a fine success. I think it has created some situations in offices that I'm really very proud of. At one point, a couple, two teenage boys and mom and dad came in the store on a Saturday and there was no one in the store. And they were from Alabama. And they came and they were standing there and Nobody was saying anything. I don't know what they clearly didn't. They weren't there for architecture books. And uh, finally, the father said to the oldest boy, "Tell him." And uh, he kind of went down. And the father said, "No, no, tell him." So the oldest boy was kind of a laugh. Said, "It's the only cookbook she'll use." And, tell him. Yeah, I mean, tell, it's the only one she'll use. That cookbook. She's the only one. And she she stood up and she said, "We were coming up here for some event, and I told him we're going to go find this guy. Mm -hmm. It's the only cookbook I'll use." And they said, "Thanks," and out they went. That was that. <laughs> and it's a. It's a sweet, honest, good-hearted cookbook. After a couple of years of it, I went back to them and I said, they said, what, you want, what do you want to do next? And I said, and this is really the answer to your question. I said, you know, I, this country doesn't have a tradition for making dinner. It's a land that ha now hands down so little oral history and oral tradition and oral knowledge and oral detail. To my mind, it's crucial if you want um, a country of people who think and talk and eat and have a health that they know that you create a system whereby they can buy and 
prepare and enjoy dinner. If the farmer's markets and all this other stuff are any indication, it's a fine time to move this generation toward the knowledgeable task of preparing food and preparing it in a way that is at least as exciting as going out. Preparing it in a way that is at least as alluring as going out. I mean, I have an email from my wife saying, what time will you be done? Because she wants the fish soup. And, you know, she can go down. We live up on Whidbey Island. She can go down and order fish soup. But it's the, the it's full the, event. It's a full thing. Aesthetic event yeah, around It's a day. thing. Mm-hmm. She wants the fish soup. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's not unlike what I do, which is I would, of course, always argue that if we give up reading, uh, we will greatly suffer. It's couldn't be more difficult. It's more difficult to read than it is to make dinner. So speaking about reading, let me do a <laughs> shift on, on yeah. you. And I follow your Instagram account. Yeah, good. And, and some of the most memorable posts in your feed, it's a series of handwritten notes that you write, I assume. Uh-huh. And you seem to post these on Wednesdays when yep. the mood strikes you. And they are tagged with hashtag to write on Wednesdays. So I'm going to mix it up and I want to use a handful of these notes to spark conversational springboards for us. So I'll read a few of them back to you and get your thoughts. All right, here we go. Here's the first one. There is scant room for serendipity and scant life without it. (laughs) That was a good one. What was was going through (laughs) your mind when you were scribbling that one out? It's an interesting thing. I told someone the other day, I said, it might entirely be possible that one of the effects of Trump being president is that everyone is reading less. They're a little bit pushed in confidences. And so the easier, the faster food is to watch a TV series or uh, go to a movie or whatever the case. Because he's the opposite of serendipity. He's the push. He's the attack that took away intimacy. Intimacy is extraordinary value to a culture. You must be very careful to not completely join the band. The members of the band, I mean, there were there have been plenty of times in our life when no one would have listened to this much idiotic politics. They would have said, are you crazy? Why would I bother with this? Mm-hmm. But the push is on. Mm-hmm. So all of us are pushed and a little distracted and a little helter-skelter, and that's a shame. I, mean, I don't know if it's the old fogey in me, but I remember the time when Maybe it was in the 70s and 80s when I would think, okay, 60 Minutes is coming. Here's the one time a week or whatever other programs. I will pay attention and really hunker down with the folks who are That's telling correct. me the news and right. and really think about it and not hear it for the next two or three days yes. or maybe read it in the night. And it allows it to simmer. Mm-hmm. It allows you to think about it. Mm-hmm. But here it's a continuous opinion A, opinion B, opinion C, and you just jump mm-hmm. and jump and jump until you just commit and run with it right. because everything is out there. Right. And yeah. we're many things, but we're in an odd way. We're an extraordinarily good hearted culture in this country, even in its most wicked senses, uh, even in its most biased, racist senses. The good heart is to try to include what you think is you or what you think this and that is. And all that is fine, but we will learn, I believe, to narrow the input because it's idiotic. Mm -hmm. And it sounds paradoxical if you just focus on, let's say, one source of information or data, whether it's a novel, whether it's one long-form article, versus 
focusing on five or six or seven headlines that come through your social feed. Yes. On the surface, people will think that variety of exposure is making me a well-rounded, more well-informed person, and I can I, think all the yeah, sides that's the good of the facet. Yes. But that's not necessarily true. That one deep dive from one source, if you have good analytic thinking, you can go all mm -hmm. those different angles on your own and then go seek additional information mm -hmm. rather than just being bombarded it's, with it. It is at its least formed period in that there's enormous amount of money being made creating things to throw into it. Some could argue you and I are doing that. We're not making money at it, but we're putting something into into the uh, system for someone to hear mm -hmm. and uh, that you and I are having a good time. That's just an advantage. Um, but it will, it will hopefully, or in any realistic sense, it will start to heal itself. You cannot, you know, I have 28 guys standing in front of me on the train coming down from Mukilteo and there was a beautiful sunrise and they were all on their phone. And I just thought, all right, but it can't go forever. That's as far as I went. It just, it can't go forever. It can't, you can't have the total death of a sunrise just for this little piece of shit phone. I don't care what it's telling you. Now, you know, I was raised uh, in the fifties in which, um, frankly, a man, there was a great tradition for, there was a great tradition that a man would not talk on the phone except perfunctorily. That was the tradition. It was as clear a tradition as that you zipped your pants. Images of Humphrey Bogart and all the film yep. noirs on the phone just yep. float through my head just right, right now. <laughs> just, and that was the deal. That was, that was all, I, you know, that's how I was raised. And uh, clearly now people imagine that talking, I'm not obviously against talking. I think it's a brilliant thing. In fact, I think it's an extraordinary thing. I wrote a quote at some point, I don't remember where, in which I said, you show some grit, come into the coffee shop, come into the bar and don't open your electronics. Look around and see who's there and let them see you. Uh, we've lost some of that confidence. We have lost some of that interaction. And, you know, I, I, it's easier for me to vote for life than it is to vote for electronics. So here's one, and it's related to what we've, we've been talking about. It, you said, and I quote, the time that you spend daydreaming is now land for sale, end of quote. There are companies all over the world trying to get that time from me. I have 15 minutes that's, in metaphoric sense, land. Land that you can buy. If you can get 10 of that 15 minutes from me, you've got something. Because I'm available. I'm musing. Now, I'm sure there are people doing extraordinarily intricate studies of what kind of a population do you create when you eliminate musing? When you simply push so that all of their waking hours, you can intercept with something that either lures, draws, impels, compels, propels, delivers onto that land of that five minutes of musing, that 10 minutes of musing. That And if someone had said that you would create a product that would force 85% of the population to bow their head and look at their hand on a little product that they held there impelled by a battery, you never would have believed it. It really is quite remarkable, this uh, divorce from the, you know, the passage of a day, from the passage of all the other humans, from noticing how you look, how you feel, how you're doing. Is it better? Did you, how's your family? Strip all that away. Put all these people straight head down onto their little phone. It's remarkable. Uh, the recovery from it and the uh, 
consequences from it and the uh, implications of it, ah, I, I'm, they'll all be done a million times. I, I, my point about both cookbooks is that um, you can use a little time just doing without. And speaking of all that, here's another one to, to unpack. Ahead. Quote, I would never go to your town and not ask you for help. Where will I stay? Where do I have coffee? Lunch and dinner. Mm -hmm. What must I see? What must I taste? Mm -hmm. What must I hear? And what must I sense? Mm -hmm. Oral history is the health of a town. And it is. And it is. And it really is. Oral history. Very few people get an oral history of cooking from their family. Very few people get an oral history of um, literally history or an oral history of what job they're going to do or anything else because their job is generally unrelated to their family. And very few people have the kind of family that would even be comfortable doing that. But oral history is the Airbnb of language. I mean, it is the uh, it is such a sweet intimacy. It is uh, it's you know where it's practiced with. Incredible ease, Montana. If you're in Montana and you're in Bozeman, you said you're going up to Dillon and you're with some people, they'll say, oh, don't forget to go to blah, 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 and the Wubada and the, oh, the one, the one play looks like a dump, but you got, you should stop in. It's very interesting that they link Montana with a kind of oral history. And Montana being sort of the Vermont of the West, Montana really has a much more intimate community that way. Uh, certainly than Idaho, where no one ever says, oh, if you're going up to Coeur d'Alene, try the it doesn't have it. it. Doesn't have that tradition. Oral history takes um, a back and forth, mm-hmm. and so you you need um, you need to think that matters. Now, someone even with my tie and my nice jacket, as I walked up to the Pike Place Market, a grandparents, and the daughter, and the daughter's husband, and the three kids walking up the hill. The grandfather said, "Excuse me." I said, "Yes, it was beautiful summer walking up the hill." Could you could you could you tell me are we headed in the right direction for the Athenian? And we were down by Pioneer Square. I said, "Sure, come on, I'm going right that way. Let's go." And we walked a block or two. And he said, "Yeah, that's okay. You don't have to help us anymore." And I said, "No, no, that's where I'm going." I missed it. He said, "Are you going to charge us?" <laughs> natural and suspicions. I said, I know. And I said, "Where are you from?" He said, "Pittsburgh." And I said, "It's a shame you don't know better." I said, "But with luck, maybe your grandkids will know." And, you know, what you're describing points back to the themes we were discussing. If, mm-hmm. if serendipity and daydreaming is at a at a premium nowadays, it's that oral history and those interactions that allow you, in a way, to have serendipity through the personality of another, as well as it's a form of daydreaming. You're letting your exploration float freely, yes. guided by another's expertise and yes. history. So. Yes. We're at... Rather than an algorithm. Right. We're at an unattractive moment of history and an unattractive moment of politics and um, progress. And the best hope is that this is how you create the soil for a renaissance. And the worst hope is this is just the start of it and the soil gets worse. Mm. I can't tell you which one. I, of course, believe that in some weird, bizarre way, we're better off knowing what we know from Trump than what we might have gained from uh, Hillary. Mm. Um, I'm sure some people could argue either way, but it doesn't matter because that's not what we have. Uh, I believe that a lot has been cleared up with Trump as president, and I believe it might be more interesting to see how people handle their votes and how people handle getting other people to vote in the next election. And by cleared up, you mean in the way an id is yes. revealed yes. and it's thus a, you a, can work on it. Is, it. It, is, uh, it was 
it was much more dangerous unrevealed. Mm-hmm. It's quite, everyone knows a lot more, everyone, than they did a year ago. Yeah. Whether they like it, use it, want it, think it good or bad, they are stuck with more than they had. Mm-hmm. The American mythology has shifted dramatically yeah. in the past year. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it's become, uh, it has, uh, it, it is intricate. It is more intricate. It is more, um, uh, it has more detail. So. so let's end with this one. This one is, I think, more about you. Yeah. Quote, I am thrilled to make a mess, but I need order. <laughs> I guess it is about me. And it is quite true. I am thrilled to make a mess. I will. I sat at a dinner. We were at the Corson. You ever go to the Corson? We were at the Corson building. We were having dinner. My wife said, I don't want you just talking to everybody else. Just we're going to, this is our dinner out. And it's a communal I, table. Right. Communal table. And I said, table. fine. So we sat and no one, they were all there. And I didn't say a word. I just was as quiet as, but the other table was really animated. And our table was just dead as a darn hell. And they had a little bit into it. She said, start talking. <laughs> I said, I'm not talking. She said, start talking. I said, do you want me to make a mess? And she said, yes. <laughs> and, uh, so I said to my table, I said, have you no pride? You think that's the table of interest? Has nothing happened to you? You know, I don't know. And of course we energized and in the non-specific contest of how was the dinner, we were quite fun by the end of it and had talked to everyone and it was a good time. Um, but as some people say when they come in the store, is there any order to where the books are? And and I say there's literally a place for every single book in here. And it's there because it's our best judgment. That's its best place for it related to all the other books. And, well, why don't you put signs up? And I said, because they would be a distraction. It is an order that you can see and understand if you look. I hope that's an answer to that question. It is. Yeah. So let's end by telling people where they can experience your shop in the analog and digital <laughs> worlds. How could people in Seattle and beyond find you? Well, Pioneer Square, uh, First Avenue, between First Avenue and Alaska Way, right in the alley behind the uh, behind the Mission, it's between Jackson and Maine. It's a lovely little location, but it's a little tricky. There's a little parking lot next to the next to the uh, Lady of Mercy Mission there, and you can see our red sign. I expect we're going to be there for 50 more years, so. Come and visit. Uh, we're open. We're now closed on Sundays. It's a great relief to be closed on Sundays, uh, but we're open 10 to 6, Monday through Friday, and then 10 to 5 on Saturday. Uh, the 10 to 5 on Saturday was because one of our locations said 10 to 5 on Saturday. And I said, well, we have to make it 6. And the entire staff said, keep it at 5. Hmm. We can get home an hour early. And how about online? Is there an online? Online, peter at petermiller.com is my email, but www.petermiller. Uh, we have a website. I don't think it's perhaps an extraordinarily brilliant website, but it's a start. We're a shop in the best sense of a shop. Uh, that means come visit. If you can't come visit, you can call me up. I'll try to reenact it for you. Peter, thank you not only for sharing your thoughts and your time with us today, but for enriching our lives in Seattle over the decades. Thank you so much this for spending was fun. time with Thanks. us. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to share, like, or leave a review on iTunes about this podcast since all this activity helps us get noticed and grow. I would also love it if you visited thismustbetheplace.io where more podcasts, videos, and written content all live. On that site, you will be able to find out more about Peter Miller, about his shop, 
and about his books, Lunch at the Shop, The Art and Practice of the Midday Meal, and Five Ways to Cook Asparagus and Other Recipes, The Art and Practice of Making Dinner. I will also include additional links covering some of the themes we discussed today. As always, you can subscribe and receive the latest greatest episode on your favorite app and device. Until the next time, this must be the place.